Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All right, hey, last few weeks, um, the, we have been in Romans 13 and looking at this idea of honoring and supporting our government leaders. And I got all kinds of great feedback from you guys, uh, particularly, uh, I think maybe last week's, uh, you know, talk about social media. Several of you have mentioned that, you know what, I needed to hear that. I'm looking at how I'm using social media because I think I've gone a little bit overboard. You know, as I was on social media this week, I was struck once again by just the tone of antipathy and antagonism and hostility, outright hostility towards Christianity within social media through memes and, and you know, cartoons and comments in different ways. And, and you don't see it about the other religions. It just seems to be Christianity. Now, maybe I'm just more sensitive to it because it's great, but that just seems to be the way it is. And I wonder why that is the case. I, I think in part, obviously, the, the gospel itself is offensive. And so therefore, um, if even no matter how graceful, how winsome, how kind we are about communicating the gospel to others, at some point it can offend simply because it contradicts what is the common belief of our society. But I also think that, you know, um, we're bearing the fruit of decades of actions within American evangelicalism that has politicized the cross rather than incarnating the gospel to a hurting world. Uh, we've been very effective, uh, we are effectively and loudly vocalized our opposition to the decline in our society, to political ideologies, and we've done it in ways that are not necessarily loving. And so as a result, the, uh, the chickens are coming home to roost, so to speak, and we're bearing the fruit of that today. And so essentially here in chapter 13, the first seven verses were a digression where Paul illustrated why we should not take vengeance, but instead love our enemies. As, as new covenant Christians, we do not have the luxury or the right to take vengeance and carry out justice on those who do us wrong and against criminals. This is the role of the state. And this is God-ordained, and that's what we learned in the last couple of weeks in verses 1 to 7. But here in verse 8, Paul is returning to a theme that he had really been developing and unpacking in the last half of chapter 12, and that was the theme of genuine love. And in chapter 12, we saw that you know, genuine love has, is, is what is to motivate our relationship with God, and the love of God that we've received is to motivate our service to other people, and it starts with those inside the church and how we interact with one another and serve one another. 
Well, now he returns to this theme of genuine love. And in these verses here, chapters 8 to 14, as we finish out this chapter, he's teaching us that genuine biblical love is the heart of new covenant ethics. Now, for those of you who like an outline, I'm giving it to you right up front to help you with your note-taking, right? We're going to take these verses and we're going to organize them into three basic points. First, there's the debt we owe in verses 8 to 10. The day we face in verses 11 through the first half of chapter 12. And then the decision we make in the last half of 12 through 14. Let's start in verse 8 with the debt that we owe. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, steal, covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, every church I've been in, where I was either the pastor, an associate, whatever, when we have entered into maybe a building program or some other kind of capital campaign where we went to the church and said, we need to borrow some money. Every church I've been in, at least one person has come up to me and said, I'm not in favor of this. The church should not go into debt because the church, the Bible tells us we are to owe no man anything. They quote verse eight to me, right? And listen, I, I appreciate the sentiment that, uh, you know, it is, we, we, you know, Christians who are not in debt and not in bondage, financial bondage, we can, we can be better stewards of God's money. We can do more to impact the kingdom of God. But interestingly, I can especially remember one instance where the guy was rather vocal about it. And, and I happened to know that, you know, he was renting his house. And it's a part, it's a house that he had, like a three-bedroom house, he and his family. And so when he was done, I said, hey, I appreciate what you're saying. And this was when I was younger and snarkier. Just let me give you that caveat, okay, up front. I was younger and snarkier. And so I said, so I, I assume you're going to be moving out of your house this week and becoming homeless. And he looks at me like I'm weird. And I said, well, you owe rent to your landlord every month. You owe a man based off of that contract. So, owe no man anything. And he looks at me and says, of course, the Bible is not telling us we can't have an apartment that we rent from someone. We enter into a contract with that individual who's decided we are a credit-worthy risk. We owe them rent and we pay it every month. Therefore, we do not owe him in that sense. The same way with a bank, a mortgage, whatever the case may be. But, but, but the thing to understand is Paul is not giving us a thesis paper on stewardship in these verses. He's not trying to teach us about financial responsibility here. That phrase is actually nothing more than a, really an intentional transitional statement, right? He's just told us that we are to pay what we owe to Caesar, we're to pay our taxes, our tribute. We're to honor and respect him. We are to pay what we owe to Caesar, and we are to give God what we owe to him, but don't give Caesar what we owe to God. Remember all that, right? And so he's now transitioning and saying, okay, we've talked about Caesar. Now let's talk about our neighbor. Let's talk about the people that we live with. How about we pay them what we owe them, right? And yes, we're to pay everything that we owe. If you enter into an agreement with a bank, you pay them what you owe. 
You don't cheat them. You don't, you know, keep the money for yourself. I mean, that's just, that's biblical ethics at work. But what his point here is, is that we have a bigger debt that we're to pay. The biggest debt that we owe is one that we actually will never finish paying this side of glory. It's the debt of love. Love. Now, again, let's make sure that we understand what biblical, genuine biblical love actually is. It's not a feeling. It's not some sense of inner affection and warm fuzzies that, you know, give us this glow about somebody else. It's great if that exists. It's wonderful to experience it. But that is not biblical covenantal love. In fact, that word is maybe the best way to understand love in the Bible. The word covenant, our church's name, right? That word covenant really helps us understand biblical love. God is a covenantal God. In the new covenant, God in his grace took Jesus' death, his life and his death, as payment for our sins to satisfy his wrath. He's a covenantal God. He made this covenant, a binding agreement with us that he's going to take Jesus' death on our behalf. He made a binding agreement with us, which is based upon that promise. It's based upon his character. It's based upon his faithfulness and his holiness and his mercy and all of these things combined as he acts towards us reveal Love, it's covenantal love. So through Christ in the, in the scriptures, in the new covenant, God gives us gospel promises, doesn't he? He tells us that if we trust in Christ alone, our sins are forgiven and we enter into his family as loved sons and daughters of God. He promises in the new covenant that he will give us the Holy Spirit and dwell us with his presence, give us the power to live a life that brings honor to him. He promises to give our lives purpose and meaning and satisfaction and we find them in Jesus Christ. He promises to work in us and to change us and to transform us until the day when he glorifies us and he completes this process and we spend eternity with him. This is God's covenantal promises. Does God have warm fuzzies towards us? Does God have affection for us? Yes, I believe he does, but we know his love not by his inner affection. We know his love for us by how he carries out his covenantal promises for our good and for his glory. This is love, and we need to remember this. We, we know this instinctively, right? Those, those who are married, there have been times in your marriage where you did not have warm, fuzzy, affectionate feelings for that person that you married, right? Can we all agree with that? They, you know, or you're a parent and that child has camped out on your last nerve and drove in two or three extra tent spikes to make sure that they don't leave it. And you aren't feeling very affectionate towards that child at that moment. You don't have warm, fuzzy feelings, but does that mean you don't love them? Of course you love them. You love that spouse. Why? Because you have entered into a covenant of marriage. You have a covenant of love with those children. And so biblical love is something much more than inner feelings of affection. 
It's tangible actions and commitment to the other person for their welfare and for their good. And so if you have experienced this kind of covenantal love from God through Christ, Paul says, you are a love debtor. Every one of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are love debtors. And then Paul makes an interesting point. It's a point that you don't expect Paul to make because this is the guy who has clearly preached throughout the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, other places, that we are not justified by obeying the law, right? This has been clear in the book of Romans. Yet he turns around and says that the way we repay this debt of love will look like obeying the law. All of us love debtors, to repay that debt, it looks like obedience to the law. How interesting is that? To obey God's law is to love. And when we love, we automatically end up obeying God's law. That's cool. And he, and he demonstrates this through the Ten Commandments. The, you know, there's ten of them, right? That's why I call it Ten Commandments. The first five are vertical between us and God. He assumes that we love God in, this, in these verses. The other five are horizontal, our love towards the fellow man. Those are the ones he lists, right? And he uses that as an example of what love looks like. Our, our love debt, it's covenantal. It's not the warm fuzzy feelings of affection, even though that's great if it's there. It's the love of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love that is patient and kind. Love that is not envious or boastful, that's not arrogant or rude. Love that is not irritable or resentful. Love that doesn't insist on its own way. Love that bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love that is gentle and sacrificial and proactive. It does not discriminate, but it encompasses everyone. It's love that builds up and seeks the good of our city, that seeks the good of our neighbor, our fellow man, our family member. And for those of us who are experiencing the never-ending love of God. It is a never-ending debt to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. So he opens up with this debt we owe, a love debt. We've received this great love. Now we love in Jesus' name. Secondly, there's the day we face, verse 11. Beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. You know, I'm, uh, if you were to go in my garage right now, you would say this place is a mess. Um, and the reason why it's a mess is because yesterday I spent several glorious hours sweating off 10 pounds as I pulled out all my fishing gear and I arranged it in strategic places and other gear that I need because as soon as I give you the benediction, I am out of here. And I'm heading to the Keys. And so I primed everything so I can load it in my boat, load it in my truck, and I'm gone, folks, for several days of the Keys. You know, I, I, the thing about it, though, is I can't think of the Keys hardly anymore without thinking of my brother Craig, who passed away. Uh, last year. We, we loved going to the Keys together, and we had great, great memories down there. Um, 
you know, growing up together, Craig, Craig was eight years older than I am. So, you know, and we shared the same bedroom all of my life until he left and went to the end of the Air Force, I think around the age of 19 or 20. Uh, he was in my bedroom. And, and the thing that I remember as a child realizing was this dude can sleep, right? Now there's eight years difference. And so, especially by the time like I'm in third grade, so, you know, like I'm nine and he's 17, the guy could sleep, man. And you could not wake him up. And I enjoyed this because I tried to, <laughs> you know, I tried all kinds of things. I would tickle his nose. I would pull the sheet off. him. I would do things to his feet. One time I saw how many books I could stack on his stomach without waking him up. And you could not wake him up, man. He just, he was such a sound sleeper especially growing as a teenage guy. Some of you who've had teenagers, you understand what it's like. I mean, it's like they can sleep all day long, you know? It's one o'clock in the afternoon. Are you going to ever get up? And, you know, what, what's the deal here? And I, my parents, my, my, my parents, they, they got a special crown in heaven because to wake Craig up for school took extraordinary measures, sometimes involving pots of water being dumped on him, right? And, and when he would get up, he would walk around like he was just a zombie, I mean, a slug had more energy than Craig did on school days. The guy just could not wake up, except it could be three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, our dad would knock on the door, or our uncle would knock on the door and say, guys, it's time to go. Boom, he was out of bed. He was, done. he was dressed, he was ready to go. He was bright-eyed, he was bushy-tailed. He had all kinds of energy when it came time to get up and go fishing. School, work, any of those things, forget it. Fishing was a different story. You know, there's a tendency here <clears throat> that Paul is addressing. And it's the tendency that <clears throat> many of us have towards lethargy. Uh, I've wondered what my avatar would be as a Christian. I wonder if it would be a Christian slug. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, it's a tendency in my life. It's just easy, isn't it? to simply just exist as a Christian. You know, you put one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, one day after another, after another, doing your Christian thing, not even really thinking about it. And before you know it, you're half asleep. You're walking around, it looks like you're a Christian zombie, a Christian slug. And in these verses, Paul is exhorting us to something. He says, wake up, wake up, shake off this spiritual lethargy. Why? He gives us a couple of reasons. First, the current times that we live in. Besides this, you know the time. <clears throat> Literally, besides this, you know the present day, the present times. So Romans, you know what you're living in. You're living in a society governed by Nero. Your lives are in danger. This is a serious situation here. You can't afford to be devouring one another and, and eating one another up and arguing and quarreling and having these divisions in your church. There needs to be unity here because of the times that we live in. And he's going to really begin talking about this next week in chapter 14. Today, you might say, church, covenant, come on, understand something. Your culture that you live in, it's always changing and the pace of change in our society is just accelerating on an exponential basis. Look at how the world has just changed since most of us have been born. It's, it's unbelievable. The pace of change in our country. So church, 
Think about it. How you love the community 10 years ago, 20, 40 years ago, that, yeah, no. You got to understand the society has changed. Wake up. You got to discern how do we best love our neighbor in 2020? Because it's changed. How do we love our city in light of what's going on in our city? Study it, discern it, wake up, pour energy into incarnating the gospel to the community in which you live so that others will stop and actually consider Jesus instead of believing every antagonistic meme that comes across the social media. How great would it be in Palm Bay if, if people who don't know Christ and they see things on the internet were to say, well, that's not the Christians that I know. Wouldn't that be awesome? This, this has got to be fake news because that's not Covenant Church. He says, understand the current times you live in. And then secondly, realize we don't have much time left, right? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Look, church, no matter how you look at it, we do not have much time left. We don't. Personally, at the personal level, our days are numbered. Children, I got good news for you. Before you know it, you're going to be old. <laughs> I am so encouraging to you this morning. Right? Before, uh, Gawain, I want you to look at your grandparents. Look over to your left. You see that white hair? Before you know it, your brown hair will be that color, son. It's just inevitable. It's going to happen that fast. Right, older people? Right, amen? Yeah. Our days are numbered. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 because of this, right? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Church, listen, the world, the flesh, the devil, they're going to do everything in their power to put you to sleep to keep you in a state of spiritual lethargy so that at the end of your life, you look back filled with regrets at all the things that you never did for the kingdom of God that you planned to do, that you said, you know, one day I'm going to fill in the blank. One day when it's more convenient, one day when I have more time, one day when I have more money, whatever, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And the world is working against us to put those things off thinking I can do it tomorrow, I have enough time, and before you know it, you have no more time left. The days that we live in, they're complicated. And the days that we have left before us, they're running out. Paul says, church, you don't have time to wait. Realize this. Our life is like a vapor. Our salvation is nearer now than ever before. In other words, tomorrow, the next day, next month, next year, 10 years from now, our life will come to an end. Our salvation and our redemption in Christ will be complete. But there's also an eschatological sense to this. There's the personal, that our days are numbered, but then eschatologically, we're to remember that the final days of humanity's existence are now approaching. He says specifically, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. 
And that's a reference, I believe, to the second coming of Christ, that day when Christ returns and he resurrects the dead, when he wraps up all of human history and he ushers us into eternity. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, tells us that we live in the last days. And the last days will be completed on the last day, right? We've been living in the last day. Excuse me. <coughs> something stuck in my throat. Um, we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. And this is what Paul told, This is what Paul said to Timothy. He said, understand this, that the last days, there will come times of, of difficulty. To the Philippians, he writes, but we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. So Paul was telling these Christians, listen, get ready, he's coming. Peter says, we're in the last days. Live like it. Be on guard. Watch out. And then, of course, now here we are. I know at least one of you are saying, well, man, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, how long do the last days go, right? I mean, the last days to me says, okay, we're about to wind this puppy up. Not 2,000 years. Uh, we, we need to understand something. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter, a day with the Lord is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is as a day. From the perspective of eternity, these 2,000 years are just a, a blip. And in fact, if the Lord does not return for another 10,000 years, in light of eternity, when we've been living with God for 10 million years, what's 10,000 years? It's just 10 days. It's just a blink of an eye. So God's schedule is moving forward at his pace. We don't need to worry about when it happens, but we need to understand, like every other generation, that Christ could return in our lifetime. Now wake up. Paul says, to love our neighbors well, to pay this debt of love that we owe, it requires a sense of urgency. If we always think, oh, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, we will never do it. And so contemplating the short time that we have left to impact the kingdom of God and considering the desperate state of our culture and the times that we live in, Paul says this should wake us up, encourage us, motivate us to face the day before us. This is the debt we owe and the day we face. Now, one final thought from verses 12 to 14, the decision that we make. Recently, I was at Home Depot. I've been at Home Depot a lot during this COVID thing, you know? My wife thinks that one of the good benefits of this is a lot of those honeydews have finally gotten gone. Anybody, any of the others of you been, yeah? Yeah, I see those hands, that's right. I was there the other day and I saw this young couple. It, it caught my eye, um, first of all, because they were in their pajamas. Now, now, don't get me started on how I feel about people wearing their pajamas to the store, okay? because that could be a 10-minute soapbox. But anyway, they were in their pajamas, and even worse, I mean, they had bedhead, right? You know what I mean? So they were in their pajamas with bedhead, and it looked like they were half asleep, and the reason why I noticed it was because they were getting power tools, right? 
And their cart already had wood and paint. They were clearly going to do a construction project. And I'm sitting here, and I came this close, this close. I mean, they, they probably looked like they were in their early 20s, the age of my son. And I, you know, so I kind of thought of them like I would my son. And I almost went over to him and said, you know, it's not a good thing to use power tools in loose pajamas. And you might want a cup of coffee and wake up before you fire that saw. I wanted to say that so bad, right? Because... You know, they were not ready. It's just not smart to do something like that, dress the way they're doing. It's not smart to be involved in that kind of project and take on that difficult task and not be fully awake, awake and prepared. And, and this is what Paul is getting. He says, listen, we live in difficult times. We live in t- horrible situations that occur and we see this happening and we don't have a lot of time left to pay this love debt that we have to our families and to our friends. So wake up, get properly dressed because the task before us, it's difficult. So what does it look like to be properly dressed? And that's what he really closes out with to help us understand what this task is before us and what our challenges are and how we go about it. He says in verse 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As difficult as it is to love others well, in the ever-changing times in which we live, it's even more difficult due to the ongoing battle with sin that each and every one of us fight. As much as forces outside of us create a challenge, even greater is the challenge that comes from within. And Paul is getting at this. He says, wake up. Get dressed in the armor of God because we have a fight against a vicious enemy and that enemy is sin. And one way that sin expresses itself that is common across humanity is through our sexual desires and our emotional passions. I bet if it was just you and me sitting in a room and we did the pinky swear, And everything we said would stay between us, and we would never breathe it to another person, and we actually believed that about each other. (laughs) And then we were honest and transparent. We would find incredible common ground. That we both regularly go through periods of temptation. That we experience victories and defeats. And there's a common theme to our story. We would say something like, you know, if I could just get mastery over this area of my sexual life, of my sexual, if I could just get mastery in my sexuality, or if I could just get mastery in my emotional life and in this area of my emotions, it would just seem like so many other things in my Christian walk would settle down and be more manageable. But because of this issue in my sexuality or this issue in my emotions, it dominates so much of my spiritual energy that I end up getting ensnared and fall for minor things because I have nothing left. A pastor friend of mine 
calls this the two anchor sins that virtually every Christian struggles with at one time or another, sexual desires and emotional passions. And Paul's hitting on this in this passage. On a, spe on a sexual spectrum, let me simplify this so that you parents don't have to have awkward lunchtime conversations, okay? On a sexual spectrum, what he's saying is any sexual out activity outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is counterfeit love. It's not love. It's counterfeit love. It's lust, and it will ensnare you, and it will destroy you, and it will ruin your testimony as a Christian. On the emotional spectrum, there's those words quarreling and jealousy in the text, by definition, this includes other people. So these are situations that rather than loving them in a biblical covenantal sense, when our emotions and passions are out of control, we love ourselves at their expense. And it gets expressed in bitterness or not forgiving. I love the, the, the Skittles illustration this morning, Dan. And, and by the way, for the record, I raised my hand. I love Skittles, okay? I'll take those 490. No, no, give them to the kids, right? But this is what quarreling and the, the emotional passions are when you love yourself at the expense of someone else and you hold a grudge against them, you don't forgive them, you're bitter towards them, you're, you're irritable and just and all of these things. And so what's the remedy? He says, wake up, armor up, realize you're at war with sin. And to do this, we put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's how. That's how we carry out this task. Now listen. I was raised in a church that, man, they loved that expression, making no provision for the flesh. And they harped on that, and they dealt with that, and frankly, their explanation was nothing more than a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. Paul, what Paul's getting at here is, is much more profound than a behavioral checklist. What he's saying is that, first of all, recognize who you are, who we are in Christ, and appropriate that truth. Put on Christ. Recognize who you are. In, listen, in Galatians chapter 3, we are told this. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have what? Finish it with me. Clothe yourselves with Christ. In other words, this has already happened. We are clothed in robes of righteousness. We have Jesus' righteousness and our account. And as a result, God has declared that we are forgiven. His covenantal love is expressed to us through Christ. We're forgiven. We are declared sons and daughters of God. Eternity is our inheritance. This is who we are. When we look in the mirror, we're wearing the tuxedo of Jesus or the wedding gown of Jesus. This is, these are our clothes as believers. We're dressed up in Jesus. This is fact. And every time I sin, I forget that fact. Every time I indulge a, a passion, a lust, a desire, whatever it may be, I've forgotten that I'm wearing tuxedo and you don't go wallow in the mud when you're in a tuxedo. Yesterday I was working on my boat, right? 
And I was getting greasy and all that, and I'd get grease on it, and I was sweating. And you know what I would do with my hands? Ladies, you know what I would do? What, what do your husbands do? Right? Right? I didn't care. Why? Because I was wearing clothes, ratty clothes, that I could get greasy and dirty and then throw in with all of Catherine's towels and wash them in the washing machine. Right? Right? That's what I was, I was wearing appropriate clothes for that. Listen, if I was dressed in my tuxedo, which I can't wear anymore, I need to lose one. But anyway, if I was dressed in my tuxedo, I wouldn't be out there working on the boat in my tuxedo, right? When you wear a tuxedo, when you wear a nice dress, a, a dress up or a wedding gown or, or, or a three-piece suit, you, you behave a certain way, right? You don't go play basketball in your three-piece suit. When you're dressed up, you act differently. In fact, I remember in school being given a book way back in the early 80s. It was called Dress for Success. Remember that book, you executives who are older? We all had to read it, right? You dress a certain way to be... And this is what Paul is getting at here. He says, listen, you're dressed up in the tuxedo of Jesus. Don't go work on your boat. Don't act like you can't behave like this. You're not dressed appropriately. You're wearing Jesus. Look in the mirror. See who you are. See how you're dressed. That'll stop you from behaving and living in an inappropriate way. And then secondly, we make no provision for the flesh. This is not some aesthetic. You know, beat yourself around the head and shoulders like Martin Luther did and you know, living a, a deprived life and creating a checklist of do's and don'ts. That's not what this is. We make no provision for the flesh by focusing our eyes on a glory that is greater than any promise that sin can ever make to us. We make no provision for the flesh by hoping in the one who's purchased our redemption and has clothed us in white robes fit for God's presence. It's, it's looking in the mirror and saying, dear, so I am. I'm dressed in Jesus and now appropriating that, contemplating what's involved in that. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Did, did you catch this? John says, listen, we're children of God, but we have not yet reached our final destination. We're a work in progress, but there's coming a day when Jesus will return again. And when we see Jesus at that moment, when we literally see Jesus on that day, we're going to be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Sin and all of our battles and struggles and consequences of sin, they disappear, they go away. We're remade and recreated in the image of God as we were originally intended to be. The minute we see Jesus... We are totally and eternally transformed. So he says in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. How do we purify? How do we make no provision for the flesh and become pure? By hoping in Christ, contemplating Christ, just as we will one day see him with our physical eyes. Between now and then, we gaze upon him with our spiritual eyes. 
We contemplate him. We contemplate what he has done for us. We consider it. We rejoice over it. We appropriate it through the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. This makes no provision for the flesh because when the voice of temptation begins to shout, there is a louder voice of God's glory screaming, no, you're my beloved son. We're to put him on every day, throughout the day. Are we clothed? Yes. But Paul's point here is throughout the day, we have to appropriate this truth. And in all honesty, that's where I struggle. That's where I can become a Christian slug. I can get so wrapped up in my day that I, before I know it, I haven't really stopped to consider and contemplate and appropriate who I am in Jesus Christ. I know some people who are awesome at this. And, and one of the ways that they have become good at this is they have built into their life habits and routines that trigger the opportunity for them to contemplate Christ, to gaze upon his glory and to preach the gospel to themselves. Of course, one of the ways that we're all familiar with is just simply starting our day in worship of God, in his word and in prayer and contemplation and meditation. But listen, if you start your day with that and that's all you do, that's just like eating breakfast and then going all day to bed without eating another meal. And I don't know about you, I'm miserable by about two o'clock in the morning on those days. Hungry, I can't do that, right? And so we need triggers. I, I, know, I know one uh, person their trigger is every time they wash their hands. Every time they wash their hands or they put on hand sanitizer, they contemplate the fact that through Jesus, their sins have been washed away. They have been made clean. Their sins are as far as the east is from the west. And as they're cleaning their hands, they're realizing, they preach to themselves, I am accepted and loved by God because I've been cleansed by God. Maybe it's when you're at the stoplight. Lord of mercy, we have plenty of them around here. But, and I catch every one of them. So if that's my trigger, I'd have plenty of opportunities in the day to preach the gospel to myself. To simply pray, Lord, help me to stop doing those things which are so contrary to the way I'm dressed in Jesus. Give me the grace that I need to be the man that you have decreed me to be. Parents, maybe it's when you're changing that diaper. <laughs> That's a trigger for a lot of stuff, isn't it, right? But you know, when you gaze down into that face of that little child and you're filled with that covenantal love towards that child, with all the, the mess that may be there at that moment in time, what a beautiful picture it is of our acceptance in Jesus Christ to our Heavenly Father. That we are a child, a baby, loved by Him. He's, he's going to nurture and he's going to love and raise and support regardless of the mess we make. <laughs> What's your trigger? We need some triggers, guys. God help us in this. Lord Jesus, thank you. Would you give us the wisdom that we need to have some intentional triggers in our lives so that we can throughout the day appropriate who you have declared us to be. That throughout the day, we can be prompted and provoked to to simply preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind us of who we are. Lord Jesus, our flesh, the devil, the world, it fights against this. 
It will be a loud voice in our ear. I ask you to give us the grace that we need to hear you. Lord, help us to be a church, a people, that when the world looks at their social media about Christians, they ultimately say, that's not the person I know. I know Joe from Covenant, and he's a Christian, and this isn't him. Not at all. There's something wrong here. This doesn't compute. Lord, would you, would you grow us into that kind of church so that we would be a, a sweet aroma of the gospel to our coworkers and our friends and our community? In your name, we ask these things, Jesus, so that you will be glorified in the lives of people that we love who need you desperately. Amen.